Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Jeep. Welcome to the Brave Show. Oh my goodness! So nice to see you. Well, it's been a long time. I think you and I was just chatting. It's been what over ten years since we were in person, mm-hmm. and then we were at UC Berkeley. I was taking a class as an undergrad with the MBAs, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, go ahead. Doing some impact consulting back in the day. And I remember hanging out with you because you're one of the few other Southeast Asians in the school as well. Time flies. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to have to tell the audience here that um, when I was at GSI, Jeremy was in my class, and he was the best student in class. I can't believe that then he moved from Berkeley to the East Coast, and we lost like the top student there. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I have to say that I remember that. My dad was saying there's too much West Coast hippiness in me, and so he was happy that I would get some East Coast capitalism, which was like the most dad thing to hear, but also like what in the world? Anyway, that's funny. Yeah, so good to see you. Yeah, really good to see you all the way from back then. I remember one thing that was interesting all the way back then was obviously the fact that you're Thai, you were you know studying and working in the U.S. and obviously seeing you do some incredible stuff, not just in venture capital but also in being part of the diaspora, right, of uh, Southeast Asians across America. So I'd love for people to get to know your story. For those who don't know you yet, how would you introduce yourself professionally? Well, um, I'm an economist who turned a VC. Turned into a VC later in Korea, not knowing in the beginning that I wanted to be a VC. I'm an economist by training. Grew up in Bangkok, a Thai woman immigrant. I went to a graduate school here. Was my first stop in Michigan and Arbor. Right after that, I knew I wanted to work at the World Bank. So I found my way to get in one of the best international organizations, working with. The cream of the crop of economists from all around the world, and I thought, oh my gosh, I would never leave. It was one of the best experiences. Then um, I had a chance to travel to many countries, especially in African region. I went to, I served uh, ministries of finance in Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda. I went to Tanzania, and I started to see the rise in technology industry. People use phone, feature phone, not even. A smartphone for payment, so they transfer money to their parents to in different provinces. That was before PayPal became famous, and I thought to myself, "This is going to be big if people use phone for payment before the U.S. When after 5 p.m. they didn't even have electricity." So I came back with that hypothesis in my mind. I was not sure what's next. But then I started to um, learn more about tech, and I decided that I do not want to do a PhD in economics, which which was the plan at the time. That after the World Bank, I'm going to go back to school and get a PhD. So um, I decided to move to Silicon Valley, and along the way, I got my MBA at Berkeley, and that's where I met you in school. So it was quite 
a life-changing experience coming here because I didn't realize that until today, I never leave. It's, it's a big place, exciting place. After business school, I joined Intel. There was a leadership rotation program that recruited 15, about 15 MBA students from targeted 10 business schools to work there. And I was so lucky that I was a part of that program because it exposed me not just to the the hardest technology, which is called hardware, from manufacturing to how to scale hardware, how to learn about software on top of hardware. I learned from the very best leadership team who was once trained by Andy Grove. So it felt to me that the disciplines that I had and absorbed from those people kind of like instilled in me until today. But then after that, I stayed there for about seven years, helped the company launch the first Android-based low-cost tablet business around the world, targeting emerging markets. The product was successful, being at the right place at the right time. So I was asked to join a startup company as a COO. It was a roller coaster, and I loved it. I got to watch from small angel investors how they invest to the $2 billion fund VC on how they invest in a company and how they not invest in a company and why. I was hooked. So I decided that I want to expose myself more in the startup ecosystem. So I became advisors at UC Berkeley Skydeck program and other incubation programs in the Bay Area. And then later, when the time was right, I launched my own venture fund alongside my friend who I met at Haas in business school he founded his own successful company, exited a company. The second one is about to IPO. So we said, it's time that we have to give back and create an impact fund for emerging market. And because he lived in Argentina and went back to Argentina, we decided to focus our investment in LATM. So that's the current fund that I'm managing. That's kind of in a nutshell on how I moved from Thailand, an economist, moved from industry to industry, and now having an impact fund investing in emerging markets entrepreneurs. Awesome. I'd love to ask you, when you first moved from Thailand to World Bank and America, what was that like? When I first moved from Thailand, it was, it was hard. In, in the sense that coming to a grad school here, English was not my first language. And I knew that I wanted not just to learn about the hard skill, but also soft skill. I want to learn how to be a team lead. I want to learn how to negotiate. I want to learn what makes people tick. I want to be able to convince, incentivize people, form a team, create a big mission, whatever I want to do. It's, it's very soft skills are always very attractive to me. But it was also hard because I didn't know what to expect. I'm the first person in my, in my family who graduated from college like a lot of us in Southeast Asia. I'm a second generation Chinese Thai. My dad had grade four education. So nobody gave me guidance on what to expect. So I had to kind of discover a lot of things by myself through graduate school, which was already competitive in itself. And at the same time, I had to try to get a scholarship because I didn't come from high net worth financial background. So in order to get to and, and graduate from, from the grad school, I needed a scholarship. So it was a lot of challenge, all of the challenge at once, plus homesick, plus this and that. But the good things, there's something about me that, that I figured the very first year that I came to the US was, 
I remember my feeling that this is actually the place I'm going to be for a long time. I felt that the opportunity that I had, even in school, it's all about who you are. It's not a power game. It's not a money game. If you want a scholarship, if you work hard, if you are good, if you're a good student, if you're an RN, you know, there is a path to get it. It felt more like a fair game to me. And I was lucky that I had a lot of support from professors and whatnot. But it's kind of like opened up my world. And at that point in time, in a second year of the grad school, I thought, you know, if this is what I can achieve at school, I can go work at the World Bank. So to me, it's not easy, but I was ready to fight for it. Wow. Thanks for sharing. It feels like that's a very common story amongst the Southeast Asian diaspora, right? You're Filipino moving to America for studies and starting to realize it could be a longer time. And similar for you as you know, someone who's Thai. One of the big thick questions, obviously, is it's one thing to go to there to study because you want to study as a world-class institution. And then at some point, a lot of people, Southeast Asians are in America and saying like, should I stay, right? <laughs> you know, Do I want to continue building my career? Should I go back? And sometimes it's more obvious, sometimes it's less obvious. I'm just kind of curious, how would you advise people who are in that situation to be thinking about how or when to go back or if to go back? You know, I don't really think about in terms of like the country or the region or the location. I think about what I wanted to do and how I can reach and how I can reach my own potential. I want to work in the area that that really maximize my capability. I want to test my own personal capability. And I always dream to create an impact. Since I was in high school, that's why I chose economics during Asian economic crisis in 1997. That drove me to study economics and I loved it. And I felt that it's in my bone that I have to do something that creates strong impact. Otherwise, I'm not motivated to do it. It's, it, it, it's just who I am. So when I graduated, if the World Bank were in Thailand, I would, I would move back. <laughs> so it's just the area that resonated me. And I didn't even apply for any other jobs besides the bank at that point in time. And the way that I get in didn't even, was not even about applying for a job because nobody would recruit me. I'm from Thailand. I didn't have track record. I didn't go to Ivy League school, which is usually a feeder school. I used my stipend and I flew in by myself, cold call people and cold email people and pitch that you should hire me. I got a bunch of rejections, maybe like, I, I think I pitched like 50 or sending 50 emails to senior economists. And then one said, yes, it was the highest return I ever had in my life because the rest is the history. And those kind of moments that taught me that I should take risks like this, they're not afraid of rejections because they pay off. The 1% or 2% payoff is huge. Wow, that's really interesting. I like how you change the conversation from less about in the country or region, but where is it that you're best able to maximize your impact and capability? I was there, right? I was like you, I studied in the States for a couple, you know, for, for studies. I also worked there as well. And I think for a lot of folks, it's really also about the homesickness. It's about not being able to see family, you know, your old friends, is a new place. So I'm just kind of curious, how do you think about that? Were there moments you were homesick? How do you 
self-manage that tension, right? Because you know, increasingly becoming a globalized person from that country, you know, <laughs> so you don't you're not the same anymore. But you're also not really American as well. Yeah. So there's that homesickness and tension, right? Right. So how do you manage that? Yeah. Oh, in, in initially, I call my family a lot. Almost, I call my mom almost every day. In in a first year business school, she's like, "Oh my god, it's so hard." And you you point out something that is quite interesting. Now that I've, I've been here in the U.S. for half of my life, grew up in Asia half of my life, now here half of my life, people here still. They know, they feel that I'm American enough, but I'm not American. When I went back to Asia, people look at me like, I'm Asian, but I'm not Asian enough. I belong to no land. So, and it actually doesn't bother me. When I went to Africa, when I went to Eastern Europe or some places else, I feel that I belong. It's funny because I feel that I'm a global citizen. I'm curious about people. I want to get to know people. When I travel for vacation, I, I travel actually to meet people. I don't travel to go places, and I think that's something that is always attractive to me because of my curiosity in people, why they act a certain way, what they think about a certain way, why we are different or why we are the same. All those things. So, but interesting point. So we're talking about something which is interesting. This is like the, the identity of this global citizen. The stereotypes are there. So World Bank, Globetrotter. And I think it's interesting because the world is also having this weird reaction to the word global citizen as well. So I remember my secondary school. It used to be an all boys school, and so the motto used to be like everyone is to become every student is a, a scholar, an officer, and a gentleman. Those are the three paradigms we wanted every student to become. And then when we became like mixed gender, became a scholar, an officer, and a global citizen. That was considered as like okay, get this is like the more modern version of a gentleman, but. I don't think it's the same now because when you use the word global citizen these days, there's a lot of backlash, right? There's a lot of like anxiety, and that's not just coming from America, but also coming from Southeast Asian countries as well. So I'm just kind of curious how you feel about that identity of a, as a global citizen. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I, I I have to tell you one thing that I feel, or I always feel that I'm fortunate. When I work here, I say at Intel, I always bring in different perspective because I live in different countries. I travel and worked in different countries before working for Intel, and because of that uh, per perspective as as a global citizen, is critical for me to be able to help create a product, a global product that serves emerging markets, and that was one of actually one of the first. Android-based device for the company. Historically, Intel up to that point it was Intel. It was like Windows and Intel. So Android just emerged, and I was able to structure the relationship in a way that created a product line after the iPad was launched. And it's because I, I don't think it's only because of the data and the proposal. I think it because the experience that convinced people. Because I saw people use feature phone. To do the payment, I knew people were going to be able to use that device for maybe education, for maybe entertainment if they want to, or for other purposes. And I always use the, the the global mindset and my own differentiation to bring something new on the table as a complementary to what people or strength that people have. And the same thing as the startup, or even when I advise a lot of startups today. 
I usually advise the founders here from day one that I want you to think global. It's true that you want to conquer your market nationally, regionally, but ultimately you have to have a way to expand your market. So all of these things kind of became who I am and use it the global citizen for advantage, so to speak. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think basically what you're saying is that you know, global citizen is less about identity we take on, but more like something we build out, especially with the opportunities to work at a global level. I guess the tricky part is that there's so many people I know, and now that I'm back in Singapore and everything, and a lot of people who are in Southeast Asia always ask me this question, which is, should I go overseas? Should I take on this global citizen? Or should I stay because Southeast Asia is growing very quickly? There's a lot of opportunity. So what advice, I'm sure you've given this advice to your friends and family back home. Uh, What advice or how would you advise them to think through the decision about whether they should go out to study, go out to work, become a global citizen versus focusing and concentrating in at home, be in Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, Singapore? Honestly, I don't think it matters where you are. What matters is how you learn and how you continue to learn. Especially today when technology industry has grown a lot and it is very hard to avoid, let's say, getting disrupted by a certain sector or technology. So it's more important for people to know that they have to broaden their mindset. For example, if you are based in Singapore, you want to create a startup, you want to know how people have done it before in Silicon Valley, for example, so that you can scale. And then you you take the idea, you learn from the failure and um, mistakes and also successes from other entrepreneurs and you take it home. And then you build it and you localize it, you adapt it into the local market and you scale successfully. And you you know the example like Grab, that's a prime example of today, right, in Southeast Asia. And there are a lot of other companies as well, like C Group, Choppy and whatnot. So it's more about mindset than where you are and you can travel, uh, hopefully soon after COVID, you can be anywhere. You can raise funds from anywhere. You can raise funds through Zoom. You can attract the best advisors through Zoom and even work remotely. What I would like to encourage people to do is to continue learning, continue asking questions. And there is no boundary. It shouldn't be any boundaries or limit if they're very talented. Yeah, that's really good, which is really focusing on where and how you can really maximize your own personal learning. That's good. One interesting thing is that you also learned a lot along the way, which is that you've not only learned how to be an operator, you learned from being an economist to being an operator at Intel. And then interestingly, you made a transition from Intel to venture capital and the investor role, which is very different, I'll say, from the economist mindset, which I always joke, you know, the economist mindset is like, the joke about Chicago Bullfry is like, if a $20 bill is on the street... <laughs> It doesn't exist because the market is efficient enough to pick it up. <laughs> There's a lot of economics is like yeah. that, right? It's like, this is the world as it is today um, versus obviously an operator where you're building. But as a VC, you're very much like trying to invest in that future thing. What would you say were the big things that you had to, I think, change your mind or unlearn in order to transition into VC well? It's, it's interesting because when I transitioned into VC and what I realized Being a VC is you invest in startup company and you help your startup companies or portfolio company becoming successful. And especially in early stage startups. What you need as a VC or fund managers 
you need to have operating experience. It's always better to have operating experience before becoming an early stage VC because you understand what the founders and entrepreneurs are looking for, what kind of challenges they are facing. They need to form a team. They need to get additional customers. They need to prepare for scaling and fundraising. To me, the transition is more about, I'm actually sitting on the opposite side and giving advice based on what I see in a market and the experience that I've learned from doing the hard things and including, by the way, hardware and software. So I thought this is something that um, perhaps is a myth that being a VC means you have to be very good at finance and, and think, yes, you do. <laughs> it's, it's a financial industry. But what made your company successful or increase the success rate in VC investment in early stage is actually the fund manager's operating experience because you have to help coach them. At least you understand them, what they are going through. And you help them along the way. It's almost like working in partnership instead of investing and then just step back and watch and what's happening and then take the financial benefit out of it. There's also that business model too, but usually the highest return comes in the fund that has partners who know how to operate a company. Awesome. Well, these are the things that are good that you brought from point A to point B. Well, I still have to ask, what did you have to unlearn or change in order to be successful as a VC? Being a VC is an add-on in a sense that being an operator, you really know really well in one sector. And you get deep into it. You know who are a customer, you know how to create a product roadmap and whatnot. You know the cause, you know like the bottom line and, and all those things because you are in it. It's, it's kind of like one inch wide and like one foot deep. Being a VC is the opposite of that. So what I have to learn is I have to pick up other industry vertical very quickly, especially I'm investing cross-sector. I'm trying to, to leveraging from the strength from one sector to another. Is it hardware? Is it software? If, it, if I do the, say, IoT hardware and now I'm doing e-commerce or health service delivery. So that are the new kind of key information that I need to learn very quickly on what is the newest and the greatest and who are the best in those industries. What I need to unlearn or be less focused on is, you know, it's actually not my job or the VC job to understand the nitty-gritty detail about, oh, why this particular manager or technologist or developer doesn't perform and how am I going to feel in my team? Things like that. So I have to be less concerned or worry about that because even though it impacts my invested company, but I have to kind of step back and look, it's going to be solved. That's not my job. The founders will come to me when they need help or they need advice or to help recruit talent and whatnot. So those are the things that I have to switch hats and realize that, okay, these founders are very talented. They're going to take care of it. Even though it's a problem, it's like, ah, I need to get on it. But actually, it's not my job. Yeah, that's one of the dynamics I noticed myself transitioning from the founder side. You're like so deep, like I said, versus the breadth that you have to know in VC, which is a depth of its own because you have to know so many different industries and so many different verticals. One interesting thing about the way that you've approached it as well is that from the US, you're really focusing on emerging markets, you know, Asian markets. So you're not only broad in the sense of the sectors or verticals, but also broad in the geographies that you're tackling, right? So I'd love to know and hear about how you think about 
that dynamic for not only understanding the different verticals, but also different geographies and emerging markets? Yeah, that's a great question. So maybe I can step back a little bit and tell you the, the, the story about investing why let and first, even though I'm from Southeast Asia, and a lot of people ask that question too. It's the opportunity and the timing. So when, when we launched the fund last year, we already saw the landscape in Latin America that there are the amount of venture money that went into the region pretty much double every year I mean, the last five years. And a lot of money actually went into Brazil, probably around half, and then the rest is throughout, I call Spanish-speaking countries. And there are a lot of talents who do not have access to raise funds successfully in Silicon Valley, in the Bay Area. So especially in the seed round. Usually when they went through the early stage incubation program, they might be able to get some seed funding from friends and family and angels. And then at seed, they kind of fell off the map, even though they were super talented. And COVID kind of made it an opportunity for a VC like us who like to focus on seed because we are early stage. We are all operators before becoming a VC. So we came in, we look at entrepreneurs who really understand and have insights in different verticals in the local market. And those verticals um, include fintech, health tech, direct-to-consumer, e-commerce, food tech, supply chain, and sustainability, to give you an example. Because it matters a lot, it creates a lot of impact in the local economies immediately. And so when the seed fund or the seed round there aren't a lot of VCs who, who give money a seat. So we kind of like fill in those gaps. And then we follow on round in the area that creates strong impact. We don't fund every single thing. We don't look yet, at least in a biotech, because we don't believe it's the competitive advantage in the local economy or, and, and whatnot. But this is the area that presents itself if you look at an IPO, if you look at a unicorn that's coming out of the region. And it's the same, I believe, for Southeast Asia. The structure of economy between Southeast Asia and Latin America are quite similar. So there, there are many countries, many languages spoken. The countries are quite fragmented. The level of economic development is different in terms of GDP per capita. Singapore is above the rest. And Brazil is ahead of the pack and, and all these things. So it's being now the right place at the right time because of the market opportunity, because of the entrepreneur's readiness because it has good enough ecosystem so that we can carry them through when they need to raise fund in a later stage round. And then we can bring them and raise fund over here in the Bay Area as well. So that's our thesis in a nutshell to kind of answer your question, why emerging markets and why Latin America? Yeah, makes a lot of sense because you already have that experience from an American point of view in working in emerging markets and the familiarity with you know, some of the dynamics there. So you're the skill sets. I'm sure you get this question all the time, but why is it called Mr. Pink for the Let M Fund? <laughs> so we founders, we think of ourselves as an underdog. And when we watch a movie called Reservoir Dog, which was created by Quentin Tarantino, and it was actually quite violent. It's a gang movie. And there was a character named Mr. Pink, who was the only person who came out alive after the gang fight. Everybody underestimated him. He was an underdog and we felt like yeah, that's kind of like our character. You know, we, we, we have fun. We are distinctive. And a lot of time in our career, people underestimated us. And our fun 
is to invest in underestimated and overlooked founders. So this is perfect name. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's awesome. I think it's great to, to have that name. Well, I'm glad I learned that for sure. One thing I would like to ask you is, could you share with us a time when you have been brave? Yeah, I would like to go back when I was four. My mom kept telling me this story that I was in a preschool, a daycare, and I usually ride a school bus. One day I had to get on a bus and there were many buses around. It was quite a sizable school. And I was waiting in a bus, waiting for my younger brother, who was two at the time, to come in. I waited and waited. Every other student already got into the bus. My brother and I would show up. The bus was about to leave. The teacher didn't even call, didn't even do the name check or anything. So when the bus was about to leave, I basically screamed. And I opened the door by myself and I ran out. And I searched for my brother. Like, where was he? And I was like so scared that he was not going to be able to go home. And I found him in another bus. He went to a wrong bus, basically. I'm going to go to a different direction. So I brought him back into our bus and closed the door. And then I started crying because I was so scared that I was going to lose him. And then the teacher told a story, this story to my mom. And my mom said that, you know, I can rely on this person that she's going to take care of herself and she's going to take care of her brother and people around her. And she was not wrong. So she always told this story to people because it became something that defined my character <laughs> later on in life. Wow, that's an amazing story. And that's so heartwarming, I could. That's totally an American movie. <laughs> <laughs> and another, I have to tell you another recent one that I feel... It's still new. I don't know the outcome yet. Recently, I launched a new project called Sea Skylab, S-E-A-S-K-Y-C Skylab. When you are talking about diaspora, going to different country, this is the project that I would like to bring and connect being the bridge between San Francisco Bay Area and Southeast Asia, especially Thailand. I, in the last 20 years, when I looked and learned about technology industry, it brings a lot of positive changes in the society, but it also brings about negative changes. Income inequality has been so high between the group of people or the countries that have access to technology and, and the countries that don't know how to access to the technology industry in a meaningful way. So um, I'm being a bridge. I'm building a bridge between the two regions, injecting knowledge, sharing resources, and network that are built in the Bay Area and in my previous life at the World Bank for 20 years here to get people to learn, to share. And hopefully we will start seeing more entrepreneurs and more emerging fund managers coming out of the countries and the region. Wow, amazing. Thank you so much for generous initiative, right? Uh, to share what you've learned with so many different folks. So love to wrap up one last question here. If you could travel back in time, back to when you were studying at university in Thailand, and you could travel all the way back in time, so you meet you know, at a cafeteria or something like that, what advice would you have given yourself back then? I would play more. <laughs> 
study a little less, play a little more, experiment myself a little more. I study really hard, and I love the subject that I learn. Sometimes it comes with a trade-off that I didn't go out and party as much as I did. And at the end of the day, 20 years later, everything is fine. Everybody is fine. Life is too short to not enjoy yourself, and that's what I would tell myself. <laughs> In college, amazing. Thank you, G. So I would like to paraphrase. I think the three big themes that I got from this conversation. The first is thank you so much for sharing your journey from Thailand to becoming part of the Southeast Asian diaspora in America to becoming a global citizen. And I love that progression, not just in terms of university and academia, but also in terms of your work experience and your attitude as well. I think that was really interesting to have that conversation more deeply about how the world is thinking about you know global citizens and how we should be thinking about it. The second part that I also really enjoyed was the way you continuously reframed. I think the very transactional or rational debate about whether to be in Southeast Asia or in America for so many different folks in the diaspora about when to return or for people in Southeast Asia about when to go overseas. And I think you framed it up, I loved it as, you know, where and how can you maximize your personal learning, impact and capability? And I thought that was a great way to push in a new heuristic that's less about the market differences or the country differences, but more about where would you best thrive as a person. And lastly, you know, thank you so much for also sharing your expertise as a VC and sharing a little bit about obviously the backstory about why you're looking at emerging markets from LATAM to Southeast Asia, how you're sharing knowledge, and also why you chose the name Mr. Pink. And I thought that was just a great window moment for a lot of folks who are operators and thinking about maybe they themselves eventually transitioning to VC. And I thought that was a good discussion that we had. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jeep, for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyao.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.